So I've been thinking about the summer before my friends and I started college. That summer, there was nothing that we were looking forward to more than receiving our official college email addresses. Of course, we wanted to know who our roommates would be and which classes we would take, but what we wanted most was to sign up for this new website called the Facebook. <laughs> and you know what? Way back then in 2005, only college students could be a part of the Facebook, if you can believe it. And so a student email address was your ticket in. Now, once we received this critical piece of information, setting up our profiles on the Facebook became the principal project of the summer. We were meticulous as we described our interests, our political views, and our relationship statuses. For some, it was single. For the high school sweethearts among us, in a relationship. And though none of us chose it, there was this other option in the drop-down menu. It's complicated. And at least back then, you could at least, at least back then you could enter another person's name. You could say, it's complicated with so-and-so. Now for me and my friends, the idea that anyone would select it's complicated that was baffling to us. It was not that we thought relationships were simple. We just couldn't believe that anyone would broadcast online for the whole world to see that their relationship was messy or confusing or otherwise hard to define. Who would admit that it's complicated? That status had to be a joke. If I saw it on someone's profile, that's usually what I would assume. These days, I still hesitate about posting personal information online. I don't have a Facebook profile anymore. But I am more comfortable now than I was then to admit that relationships are often complicated. Maybe it's that a lot has happened since college. Some of those friendships I had back then have grown and deepened. Other friendships have faded away. The high school sweethearts, well, they were broken up by sophomore year. Everyone met someone else. Everyone graduated, everyone moved. Most of us married. Some are divorced. Some had kids. And everyone is getting older. And as we have, our relationships have changed and shifted. Our relationships have struggled. And sometimes they have ended. It's complicated. We can admit it. We can talk about it. And that's really what this sermon series is about in the life of our church. To talk about relationships in all of their real-life complexity in every season of life with Scripture as our guide. We're going to start this morning with the second chapter of Genesis, verses 15 through 23. The book of Genesis is the origin story of this world and its creatures, including human beings and human society. Genesis expresses the worldview of a community of people who lived in the Near East nearly 3,000 years ago. As modern Christians, we also believe that Genesis expresses truths about God and humanity that go beyond that original context. We look to Genesis to understand who God is from who God has always been. 
and we look for clues about who we are and who we are meant to be. What I'm about to read is the Bible's first word on relationships. It will likely be familiar. This text is often read and it has a long history in Western culture, some of which history might be described as complicated. This text is among several in Genesis that have been used to deny science. It has also been used to justify the subordination of women. And at times it has been a cudgel in debates about who ought to be marrying whom. And I mention all of this because underneath all of those layers of interpretation and debate, the word of God is still living and breathing and trying to speak. The Bible is an old book, and we are not the first to read or interpret it, but by the Holy Spirit's power, we may hear its truth afresh and in ways that are relevant and life-giving for all of us. We better pray about that. Loving one, as we gather around your word, we do ask for your help. Silence in us any voice but your own Open our ears to hear and our hearts to listen. Speak truth to us, O oh God, amidst the confusion and complexity of our lives and relationships so that we may see, even in some small way, how we are to live in Christ our Lord. Amen. Now hear the word of God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with, fresh, fresh, with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man, this one was taken. This is the word of the Lord. My husband and I recently watched this movie called Free Solo. It's a documentary, and it's about a guy named Alex Honnold. He's a rock climber who is famous for climbing up big walls by himself without a rope. That's called free solo climbing. If you haven't seen this film or heard of this kind of rock climbing, I invite you to imagine a man all alone 
clambering up a cliff going thousands of feet into the air, usually at about a 90 degree angle to the ground, with nothing, nothing in terms of gear except the shoes on his feet and a little bit of chalk on his hands to help him hold on. That's free solo climbing. It's what Alex does. In the movie, Alex is working toward climbing El Capitan, one of the most iconic rock formations in Yosemite National Park. And if he can succeed and climb the nearly 3,000 feet to the top, he will be the first person ever to do so. But in case I have not made this clear, the thing about free solo climbing is that if Alex slips, there will be nothing and no one to catch him. However far he has climbed, that is how far he will fall. Alex knows this. He admits that death is a much higher consequence than other climbers face. Other climbers are tied in and surrounded by a team. But Alex is adamant that the risk of free solo climbing is worth it for him. It probably goes without saying, but parts of free solo are very hard to watch. As Alex is hanging on by his fingertips, I can tell you that my hands were over my eyes. And there were equally difficult scenes down on solid ground because Alex has a mom. Alex has a girlfriend, Alex has friends, his fellow climbers who care deeply for him and who know what risks he is taking. At different points in the film, all of these people struggle with the fact that Alex is putting his dangerous dream above everything else, including the people he loves, the people who are living in desperate fear of losing him. On the day that Alex begins his ascent of El Capitan, his girlfriend is driving right out of Yosemite Park altogether. She simply can't bear to be around if anything should happen. So as Alex heads up, she is heading out. He'll call her from the top. Free Solo is the kind of film that critics call triumphant, and it won an Oscar. The New York Times declared that Alex Honnold's free solo climb of El Capitan should be celebrated as one of the greatest athletic feats of any kind ever. The film is a miraculous opportunity for the rest of us to experience what you might call the human sublime. Listen to that language. It's miraculous. It's sublime. It's the triumph of the human spirit. Yes, we love to have heroes like Alex. Individuals who realize their dreams through effort and discipline and the sheer force of will. We draw inspiration from such people. Because of them, we imagine ourselves to be strong and self-sufficient. We imagine that we will be able to scale the big walls in front of us. To climb the corporate ladder. To do it all backwards and in high heels. We imagine that we will be able to make straight A's or a 1600 to win, to rise above. We want to be able to say at the end of our lives, I did what I wanted and I made it on my own. Free, solo. It's a vision of humanity that we can really 
get behind. But is it God's vision? When God created the first human being, we are told that God placed him in the Garden of Eden with food to eat and a job to do. If the story had ended there, we might be justified in our way of seeing the world. We might be right in believing that life is about striving to earn what is ours. But then Genesis tells us that God stepped back and surveyed what God had made. And at this point, God was dissatisfied. Everything that had been created up to that point, God had called good. And on the whole, it was very good. Only now do we get the sense that anything might be incomplete or imperfect when God says it is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. On his own, the human being can exist, but it will take a relationship with someone else to bring him fully to life. So God gets to work on creating a suitable someone. We ought to be excited, but you know, when God says, I will make him a helper as his partner, it makes many of us anxious. Because we know that woman is about to arrive on the scene and it sounds like she is already being relegated to a supporting role. <laughs> but friends, you know, if we wanna understand what is really being said here, we actually need to bear more careful attention to these terms of helper and partner. Helper. Helper in Hebrew is ezer. The meaning of ezer is straightforward. There really isn't a better way to translate it than helper. But if you look at the way that ezer shows up elsewhere in the Bible, you will see that it is anything but a subordinating term. The ancient Hebrews applied it to mean men as well as women, but they also used it to describe God. In the words of Psalm 10, rise up, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. The helpless commit themselves to you, for you have been the helper of the orphan. You may also recall Psalm 54, which declares, surely, Surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. So helper, ezer, it's a term of dignity, even a term of divinity. No matter our gender, when we help one another, we honor God in one another because God is a helper. God is a helper, so no one, woman or man, can be called less for being helpful, and no one is exempt from helping. Remember, God has already asked for the man's help in naming the animals, in tilling the garden. The man gives it. The word partner reinforces this reading of helper. It's there so that we will understand. The helper that God is looking for is someone who will literally 
correspond to the man. The man needs a counterpart, an equal, one who corresponds, one who belongs. The newly created animals are lovely and interesting, and some may even be helpful in tilling the land, and some may even help to ease the man's loneliness. But none of them corresponds exactly. And so God changes tack. God anesthetizes the man, performs a quick surgery, and creates woman. And only in her is creation complete. And listen to how the man exalts, not because his partner is beautiful, not because her body is different, not because he now has someone to boss around. Listen to what he says. This one, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is like me. We are made of the same stuff. Eve was a new creation and a total stranger. But Adam recognized her right away as someone in essence the same. Someone with whom he shared a lot. Who would know what he was talking about who could feel what he was feeling. She was someone to whom he could relate. We were meant to see each other that way. But I wonder how often we really do. In her work on empathy, the author Brene Brown has noticed many ways that human beings refuse commonality and connectedness, especially when we see that someone is lonely or sad or not doing so well. In order to connect with you, Brown writes, I have to connect with something in myself that knows what you are feeling. And often we would rather not do that. We would rather not see how we are alike. We would rather distance ourselves from others to judge them or to downplay their struggles. And in all of these ways, we say, you are not me. Which is a far cry from, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Relationships are complicated. I feel like you're going to hear us say that a lot in the next few weeks. And you know, you already know it for yourself. Every one of us has wanted to hightail it out of there, to blaze our own trail. I imagine that many of us have driven away in tears at some point, whether they were tears of fear or grief or rage. In the boardroom and around the dinner table, and in the public square, as our differences flare up into disagreements, it can be so hard to choose to stay in our relationships when all we really want to do is to be right. And of course, some of us have known the darker side of relationships. Some of us have known abuse, exploitation, and violence. We have had to wonder if relationships can be made right, if they should be made right, and if we indeed are the ones to do it. 
Our reservations about our relationships are sometimes grave, and they may be justly so. But if we refuse relationships altogether, if we will not venture to help, to partner, to empathize, we risk losing touch with something essential in ourselves. We risk losing touch with the true spirit of humanity, that spirit which has its epitome not in our heroes or strivers or winners, but in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus shows us how to be human. Hasn't he shown us, in the words of Paul, how to be kind and to be tenderhearted? Hasn't he shown us how to forgive? Hasn't he shown us how to live in love? Jesus was never too busy to help. And though Jesus could have lorded his power over others, he chose instead to pour himself out. He embraced his human family, ordaining peasants to ministry and calling sinners to be his friends. For them, for his friends, he would lay down his life. And when he took it up again, he took our lives too and he made them his own. Christ is alive and we are alive in him, in Christ, who is holding all things together. That includes us in all these messy situations of our lives, all of the relationships that we would call complicated. We are held together in him, in Christ. We are connected without separation, without division. In Christ, everyone belongs and no one is left out. No one really is climbing without a rope. This is the deep connectedness that is the shape of creation. It's where we come from and it is surely where we are going. We may not be able to see it yet, but we're only new creations. Growth and transformation are still to come. But because we are already in Christ, we will surely grow into Christ in time and in eternity. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, we must grow up. We must grow up in every way into him, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. If we are in Christ, we simply will not be able to help ourselves. We will be joined. We will be knit. We will be built up in love. May all of us be open to this growth into Christ. As we enter into a time of silent reflection now, I invite you to think about those relationships where it is difficult to imagine deep connectedness and to invite God into those relationships. Begin to ask God how you might grow in Christ and into Christ. Amen.